The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof of them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning, everyone. It's great to have you here with us this morning. It's great to have electricity in this service. We didn't have it in the last service, so that was fun. Glad that you're all here. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the fourth Sunday after the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is a revelation. It's a new sight. It is new understanding of someone or something that breaks in upon you. It's something that is given and comes seemingly out of nowhere. Travis Kelsey, his fame, if you know who Travis Kelsey is, his fame has certainly burst upon our cultural scene lately. If you don't know who he is, he's a football player, a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. He's playing in the AFC Championship today, and his greatest claim to fame is that he's dating who? Taylor Swift. But that is not who made Travis Kelsey famous. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times last week about Travis Kelsey entitled, The People Who Brought You Travis Kelsey. And it's not Taylor Swift. It's these two brothers, the Eames brothers, Andre and Aaron. They're his business managers. And they were driving around Los Angeles with him a few years ago. And Kelsey looked up and saw a billboard of Dwayne Johnson, otherwise known as The Rock. Man, y'all are very culturally astute this morning. And he lamented and said, I don't think I'm ever gonna be as famous as The Rock. And then that became the goal, worldwide fame. And since then, he's won another Super Bowl. He has hosted Saturday Night Live. He's been in dozens and dozens of commercials, as well as launched one of the most famous and listened to podcasts on the internet, as well as a clothing line. And of course, he started dating Taylor, the most famous woman in the world. And 
what the article says is not all of that is, is, is the, what is produced by this very intentional and careful business plan. And in this article, it says this, that the success of this business plan has been Kelsey's willingness to, and his ability to continue to evolve what his image is and to stay current, but also elevated. There's a lot said in that one sentence, that his willingness to evolve and to change for the world and also to stay current and interesting to the masses and not just interesting and before them, but above them, always before and above everyone. And it's fascinating to me to see how strikingly Jesus is very, very different in regards to fame. Fame is one of the central themes of this passage. And we should all note what Jesus does differently in the face of fame. And so what is that difference? Not only with Jesus, but also with this leper. So three points this morning. One, a sense of urgency. Two, a son's response. And three, a leper's request. First of all, a sense of urgency. Last week, Brent preached also on Mark chapter one, at the very beginning of his ministry in which he calls his first disciples to be fishers of men. And immediately, a word I'll get back to in just a second, immediately after calling two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John, immediately he calls them and then he begins to teach, but immediately his teaching is interrupted by an evil spirit. And so Jesus has to cast out this evil spirit and it's important to realize that Jesus doesn't go around seeking out evil spirits to cast out. They come to him. Everyone comes to him in Mark. There's this inexplicable and mysterious draw that Jesus has for everyone and everything in the book of Mark. And that's where we begin here in verse 28, when it says, at once, Jesus's fame spread at once or we could translate it immediately. It's this Greek word that Brent mentioned last week, uthus. It's Mark's favorite word. He uses it time and time again throughout the entire gospel. In fact, he uses it 11 times in chapter one, more so than any other chapter. In fact, two times more than any other chapter because he wants his entire narrative to operate with a very fast clip and he wants his gospel to get off to a very fast start because what he's wanting to communicate is that there is nothing more important to attend to than Jesus. There is a sense of urgency throughout the entire gospel, but especially in chapter one, where we hear immediately, immediately, immediately. And he's saying, you cannot dismiss Jesus. You cannot ignore his presence. Nothing can, not even the demons do. There's nothing more pressing or more important or more urgent than him for you or anyone to attend to. And that's his emphasis. That's his point here at the beginning. And I wonder this morning, are we heeding his point? Is there a sense of urgency for us with Jesus? And I fear that for many of us, there isn't. It's very easy in this spiritually sleepy and slothful world to half-heartedly and in an ambivalent sort of way, try to attend every so often to your soul as well as to Jesus and his claims. It's so easy just to shrug it off and to say, well, interesting. Uh, yeah, probably something I should attend to, probably something important, but there's so many other things. Travis Kelsey, he's playing in the AFC Championship today. Or I've got this business deal that's gonna be finished this week. Or I've just started dating this guy or this girl. Or I've, I've got this incredibly difficult class this semester. Or my son's trying out for the baseball team. Or my daughter's trying out for the dance team. Or I'm in college. And college is not a time to attend to Jesus and to his claim. There's time for that later. When I was doing 
college ministry years ago, and I always read this little old book to the young men that I was trying to minister to. It's by this guy named J.C. Ryle, simply entitled Thoughts for Young Men. It's his thoughts as a pastor for young people. And I'm gonna read you a couple of quotes from it. One, he said, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. And he also says, what young men or young women will be in all probability depends on what they are now. And they seem to forget this. But youth is the planting time for full age. It's the molding season in that little space of human life. It is the turning point in the history of man's mind. And finally, he also says this. Once sin is allowed to settle in your heart, it will not be turned out at your bidding. Custom becomes second nature, and its chains are not easily broken. Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. So again, is there any sense of urgency for you this morning in regards to Jesus or attending to your own soul? Because there is a sense of urgency in Mark's gospel in regards to Jesus for everyone, everyone. Men, women, demons, the sick, the well, the rich, the poor, the, the irreligious and worldly, the religious, everyone is urgent and has a sense of urgency about him. And that is what makes him famous. So second point here, a son's response to fame. Our entire passage is set in the framework of fame. It's one of the first used, words used there in verse 28, but read through the rest of the passage with me. Follow through. Verse 32, they brought him all who were sick, not some all, sick and oppressed by demons. Then verse 33, the whole city was gathered together at the door. So everyone was there. And then in verse 37, Simon Peter finds Jesus and in a very exasperated way says, everyone is looking for you. It's this subtle rebuke from Peter. He's frustrated that Jesus is not doing what he thinks Jesus needs to do. And then the end of our passage, verse 45 says, Jesus could no longer enter a town like a celebrity because people were coming to him from every quarter. Very last couple words. I don't like that translation. We hear that and we just don't really necessarily understand what it's saying. It's probably better to translate it from all sides or from every direction. People are coming to Jesus. He's flooded with them, besieged by them. Exactly what that article talks about, Travis Kelsey wanting and setting his sights upon the attention, the approval, the praise of people being always before them and even above them, but not Jesus. It's a very different approach and response to fame. His response to the demons and to the crowds alike is in verse 35. Look there. It speaks about him rising very early in the morning. So early, it says it's still dark and he departed. He left the crowds and went to a desolate place. Those words, desolate place, in Greek, it's just one word. It's the word that oftentimes is translated wilderness earlier in the book of Mark or deserts. What I told you, this place is where if you go there, there's no water, there's no shelter, there's no food. It's a place where if, if you go there and God does not intervene in your life to save you and sustain your life, your life won't continue. You'll die. It is a lifeless place. And Jesus goes there to pray. And that's why he goes there, it says. He, he went there to pray, verse 35. And why? Why would he do this? Why would he retreat? Why would he step away when everything's just beginning? 
It's taken him 33 years to step into the limelight and for people to know who he was. Finally, with the world about to change right before him and his work will revolutionize history. Why does he walk away? In order simply to pray. Why is there nothing more important evidently for Jesus than prayer? Not even changing the world. Evidently, it's because he knows the fame and success in this world approval, praise from everyone, from countless crowds. It can't be the foundation of life or the goal of life or the driving force behind anyone's life, including his. But also, evidently, prayer can. You remember what we talked about prayer being this fall when we discussed the Lord's Prayer? What the dynamic core of prayer actually is? How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father. Tell all of Jesus's prayers in the gospels begin. He always begins by speaking to God as father or in Aramaic, which he spoke, Abba, which might be a word that you're familiar with. We could translate it as Papa because it's a title of deep intimacy. And in in that one little word, Abba, we have the essence or the dynamic animating core of what prayer actually is. And as we said this fall, it's not getting stuff from God. It's not getting things. The very order and sequence of the Lord's prayer shows us this. Remember what we'll say here in just a few minutes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's over halfway through the prayer before anything is mentioned about the needs that you have. Give me this day, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. It's over halfway through. And so we realize that it's not asking or getting stuff from God. Worldly needs, spiritual needs, even things as important as forgiveness, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is acknowledging and experiencing the reality of who God is, not getting stuff from him, just getting him. That's the foundation. That's the goal. That's the animating power behind human life. God himself as evidenced by Jesus, because he walks away. He gets the world, everything. He gets everything and everyone at his fingertips in chapter one, and he walks away in order to seek the presence and the enjoyment, the experience of his heavenly father's presence in a desolate place. So what is the foundation of your daily lived life? Have you ever wondered that or asked yourself anything like that? What is it that drives you, fuels you, wakes you up in the morning, gives you purpose and meaning, gives you warrant and reason for what you do, confidence to do what it is that you do? The disciples are shocked. Peter is shocked. He's even a little bit angry that for Jesus, it's not the crowds. It's not fame, but prayer. Tim Keller, God rest his soul, famously said this, or famously at least to me, he said this, said the essence of prayer is searing the senses of the mind and heart with the white hot fact that in Christ, the cosmic Lord of the universe has become your father. That's not only the essence of prayer, that's the goal. That's the foundation. That's the driving force behind life as we were created to live it. And it has to be that, it has to be him. Because nothing else in this life or in this world can sustain the weight and the burden of your life with all of its expectations and needs and desires. Nothing else can uphold that. Have you been keeping up with the war in Ukraine lately? It's kind of fallen out of the headlines a little bit, but historians are starting to compare it to World War I because both Russia and 
Ukraine are entrenched, literally. They have dug miles and miles of trenches. Uh, Despite relentless bombing on each side, there's not really any advances that are being made by either side. And so they're comparing it to World War I. And do you know what came with trench warfare in World War I? Rats. And there was an article in this in, in CNN this last Sunday and said this. This is how it began. The front lines of Russia's war in Ukraine have been infested with rats and mice, reportedly spreading disease that causes soldiers to vomit and bleed from their eyes. I mean, God, help us all. That's when I call it quits. I mean, that's when I'm out. I, I'm all for fighting for freedom against a totalitarian regime that's seeking to steal land and, and, and democratic freedoms, absolutely all for it. But I start bleeding out of my eyes and I'm out. Going to Canada or someplace. One soldier even said, imagine going to bed and the night begins with a mouse crawling into your pants or sweater and chewing on your fingernails. She estimated that there were a thousand rats in her dugout for four soldiers. It's a bad ratio. It's a really bad ratio. But here's my point. Something that started out so noble, so important, and so urgent, so good as fighting in defense of your country, even that, in the end, in this world, left to itself, gets overrun by something vile and ruined. Everything does. You remember the Old Testament story of Jacob? How he worked for so many years for one woman, for Rachel, the love of his life. He worked for years and for years. And then his crafty father-in-law on the night of his wedding to Rachel under the veil of, of darkness and probably under a literal veil sub, substituted in her older sister for Rachel instead. And you remember what the scriptures hauntingly say after that? And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, not Rachel. Life ruined, purpose thwarted, meaning lost. And that happens with everything and anything in this world eventually. Just wars, noble causes, important work, world-changing work, money-making work, marriage, family, friends, physical health, whatever it may be. In the morning, it's always at some point Leah. That's why Jesus departs to a desolate place in order to pray, in order to commune and to delight in the one thing that in this world isn't eventually at some point overrun by rats and doesn't get changed into Leah. And that one thing is none other than God himself. That's what drives Jesus out there. And if you hear anything, remember anything, this is what I want you to hear. And that is that the joy of Jesus's sonship with God the Father, that's the foundation and the power of his life the joy of his sonship with God the Father, nothing else. At Jesus' baptism, he heard, behold, this is my well-beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. That's what he went back out into the desert to hear again, those very words. That's why Satan attacked his sonship immediately after his baptism. If you really are the son of God, then do this, change these stones into bread because Satan knows something that we all too often forget. And that is that the only foundation for true life, the only real, true, unassailable foundation and power for life as we were created to live is none other than Jesus's joy in being a son, which he came to share with all of us. He came in order to create a multitude of others who would share in his very sonship and know that they are loved by God the Father to a depth and degree that they could not even begin to imagine. 
That's why he responds as he does. He responds as a son. And it's urgent. There's an urgent twofold response to Jesus's fame. One, he is urgent about getting out into the desert in order to pray. And number two, he is urgent to get to the cross to die. The last time that Mark uses the word immediately is in chapter 15, verse one, which is the chapter where Jesus is tortured and crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. He is intent upon getting Jesus out into the wilderness to pray and to the cross to die because it is an urgency of love to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and to love his neighbors as himself and to turn them into sons and daughters of his father and to share with them the very joy that he knows. And so do you know this urgency this morning? Because you can hear it in the leper's words. So here's point three. A leper's request. It's a request to become clean. That is the main and key word that unlocks everything that happens at the end of our passage in verses 40 through 45. Notice you'll see it's used four different times. And in this word, we find out so much about this man. We find out, we realize that he's not Greek or Roman because he doesn't say, if you are willing, make me well. Uh, He would have most likely if he was Greek or Roman because Leprosy was first and foremost a physical ailment. It was a disease where the body eats itself and and literally pieces and appendages fall off. It was a devastating sickness, but he doesn't say, make me well, even though his body is falling apart. And some of us know what that's like, that our bodies fall apart. He says, make me clean. Clean is a religious word. It's a Jewish religious word and actually a category of people in ancient Judaism. So this guy was a Jew. And in ancient Judaism, leprosy ruined not just your body, it ruined every aspect of your life. It ruined you socially, it made you a pariah, ruined you psychologically because you're living under a death sentence and absolute isolation from everyone because you were contagious. And they were very serious about you staying far away. If you saw somebody on the horizon and you were a leper, you had to shout out, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would come near to you. So they were complete and total outcasts. So imagine the psychological and emotional pain of having to live that like that. Weak as humans can't live without physical touch and human interaction. Babies and orphanages, they die of, of, of lacking human touch. And that was the leper's entire existence. It was a touchless existence. And beyond all of that, the physical, the emotional, the psychological, beyond all of that, a leper was ceremonially unclean to go to worship and to go into God's presence. And the ancient Jews took this very seriously. So much so that if a a leper was standing underneath a tree and somebody else who was ceremonially clean walked under and the shadow of that tree touched them, they were unclean to go to worship as well. And if all of that wasn't enough, common consensus in ancient Judaism is that if you were a leper, it was because you had done something wrong. You had done something bad you or your family or father or something, but God was punishing you with leprosy. That's why you were sick. And that's why the laws were so strict around them because the the ancient Jews, they were trying not just to protect everyone else from lepers. They were trying to participate in what they thought God was doing, which was punishing the lepers. And so he comes to Jesus here and he says, make me clean, not just well physically, not just acceptable socially or relieved psychologically, but make me religiously clean. Give me back God and his presence. 
that I might once again go to worship. And in saying that, I think we're supposed to realize that Jesus and the leper are in the same place seeking the same thing. And it's not the crowds. And it's not life in inhabitable places. It's God himself and his presence and the joy of knowing that they belong to him and they are his sons. Jesus goes to a desolate place to pray and this leper of this desolate place, he himself prays, make me clean. And here's the point. Here's where I close. That is, you're the leper. You're the leper. I'm the leper. That's what the Bible says our sins has done to us all spiritually, religiously. We're the ones shouting out unclean, for being honest. But here's the call. That's the point. Here's the call of this passage. And that is, be this type of leper who, like Jesus, doesn't care. Leads the crowds behind, their thoughts, their opinions, their approval, the consequences of the crowd. Jesus leaves them behind. And and so to this leper, because in coming to Jesus and bowing down before him with a bunch of other people all around him, if, if Jesus hadn't acted immediately and reached out and touched him and healed him, he probably would have been beaten to death. But he doesn't care because he's placing every last hope in Jesus's mercy to him. If you will, he doesn't say, Jesus, you have to heal me. I don't deserve this. You have to make me well. I don't deserve what it is that I'm experiencing. I deserve healing. No, he didn't say that. He says, if you mercifully will, you can give me back God's presence. He gives no reasons why Jesus should do this. He gives no prerequisites. He mentions no conditions, which in my 20 some odd years of pastoral experience is pretty rare. So often, and talking to people, Christian or non-Christian life, especially non-Christians, and they're considering becoming a Christian, and they come to me, they'll oftentimes say, okay, before I do this, tell me what the Christian position is on this. And if, and if I become a Christian, am I gonna have to change this way? Am I gonna have to stop doing this? Or am I gonna have to begin doing this? Am I gonna have to change like this? It's condition upon condition upon condition. There's no conditions here. No conditions. It's just Jesus's will. And his first and foremost will is to make people clean by becoming unclean himself in their stead. He goes out to the desolate, lifeless place where the unclean live, the place of the unclean, and he touches the unclean. So he makes himself ceremonially unclean in order that this one might become clean. He makes himself unworthy of the presence of God in order that this one might be acceptable back into the presence of God. It's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteous or the acceptable to God. He becomes the leper here so that this leper might be welcomed back. It's a foreshadowing of the cross. It's ultimately what Jesus does there, who takes the place of all of us in order that we might have his relationship with God the Father, and share in his joy. So friends, drop all your conditions, all your prerequisites, and just come to him and follow him and say to him what Paul himself says here in our New Testament reading, that whatever was to my benefit, whatever it was that my Leah was, I now count as loss. For the sake of Christ, compared to Christ, I I count all things lost 
All, all the, the attention, the approval, the applause, the success in this world, all, all of the world, I count it as loss compared to the surpassing greatness or worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've lost, I've given up all things and count them as rubbish, trash, refuse, in order that I may have Christ, in order that I might through him and in him regain my heavenly father and his smile and his approval and his delight. So drop all your conditions, bow before Jesus, implore his mercy and submit fully to his will. If you do, you will know the joy of his sonship that drives his life and gives meaning and purpose to you, to us all. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us a sense of your reality and your presence, your power and your grace this morning, and that we might seek you and find you as you are and as you willingly come to us each and every day, especially here as we gather in worship, in order that we might know you, be touched by you, healed, made whole. I pray that you would do that in and through your son for all of us this morning, for we pray in his name. Amen.